So, so far in this series, we've explored pieces of art and how they help tell the story of God. But as we said from the very beginning, there's also something larger going on, and it's found in Ephesians chapter 2. It's what God actually says about you, that you are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. Which is to say, number one, God always had a purpose for your life, and sometimes we get off that. We do a detour, and we're somewhere else we're not supposed to be. But God had a plan for you. God wants to get you back on that plan. And that number two, you are far more capable, you are far more important than you would ever have imagined. The Scripture says that you are God's workmanship or God's masterpiece. God in Jesus Christ has a high opinion of who you are and especially who you could be and who you will be when we get to heaven. You're God's true masterpiece and you were created to do good in the world. So we also want to discover God's design for ourselves in a series like this. And we want to be able to see God's design, God's purpose for other people as well. God is doing something beautiful and unique in each of you. And if you will just listen to that voice, the tugging of the Holy Spirit on your heart, you can discover that, and you can help others discover that as well. Today I want to show you a picture of the windows of St. Chappelle. Now this isn't all the windows, this is just kind of, and I'm not even sure you can interpret all the windows, but this is an important piece of art that's found in Paris. There's a medieval writer on seeing the upper chapel for the first time. He exclaimed, it must be one of heaven's most beautiful rooms. He imagined part of heaven looks like this. It's just a short walk from the very famous Notre Dame in Paris. The light it lets in makes the whole room feel like it's enveloped in glass almost like a heavenly greenhouse. It was built to grow and to nurture faith. And then when night falls, what they do is they light candelabras, and the effect is equally but differently magical. It was originally commissioned by Louis IX, and he built it to house his collection of holy relics, and most especially the authentic crown of thorns from Jesus. And he claimed to also have a fragment of the piece of Jesus' original cross. This chapel was consecrated in 1248 A.D., so by my math, probably before any of you were born. And close to 800 years ago, unless Yoda is in the house today, which I'm like, I'm all about it, it's a long time ago. The relics, they were kept out of view from the public you were not even holy enough to look at them. But what they could see was the stained glass, the windows. The whole story of redemption from creation to the end of time would unfold on these windows. In particular, emphasis was given to the passion of Christ as well as the kings of the Old Testament history. The kings of the Old Testament were seen as precursors to the kings of France, which is something that kings always want to do. They're looking for lineage. They're looking for claims of royalty. They're, they're looking for a bloodline 
And so people like Louis XIX wanted to be associated with people like Solomon and David and King Saul. Like they were trying to claim that for themselves. So the story in the windows emphasizes the biblical story, but it's also a nod to French royalty. And besides, if you're going to pay for something like this, you might as well make yourself look good, right, Louis? <laughs> That's what he did. Well, stained glass first gets a mention as early as the 4th century in churches, but it typically did not include pictures until the 12th century. So for years, it was really just colored glass. It was meant to light up a room before electricity. Um, it provided light and beauty, of course, at a time when electricity was not available. And then number two, stained glass pictures became the Bible of the common folk, of common people. Common people, in fact, even most of the priests, were not literate. They had no access to a Bible at all. The only time they heard the Bible was when it was read in Mass, but it was always read in Latin, which was an educated language. The only problem is no one spoke Latin. So a worshiper could instead look up and linger at the windows in St. Chapelle and be reminded of God's work in the history of mankind. As the mass is happening and the liturgy is happening, this would be the Bible you would understand. Now, one of our passions at Messiah is to show how faith and real life intersect. Faith and real life should intersect. And that starts by making sure that regular people understand the story of salvation. So I'm thankful for artists as early as the 12th century that they had that same passion and that they were willing to build it into their even worship spaces to make sure that regular people could see how their faith and their real life can intersect. Because once you know what God has been doing throughout history, it becomes easier to imagine what God might be doing in your life, what God's goal is for your life. Because the key to understanding Christianity is always starting with the creation and the redemption. If you don't understand what God created, and if you don't understand then how God put it back together again, then you'll never understand God. To say it another way, we get confused by all the stuff in the middle. The flood, the golden calf, Baal worship, David and Goliath, Jonah and the whale, none of that makes any sense if you don't start with the creation and redemption. You have to understand what God was trying to create. And then when things went wrong, what God is trying to recreate. The Bible is a story of trees. It opens with the tree of life. And things are good. And Adam is good. And Eve is good. And creation is good. As the Jewish people say, the creation was in shalom, peace. Shalom means harmony. The creation and mankind was in harmony. The birds, the fish, the trees, the soil, all in harmony. Man and woman in harmony with each other and with God. 
and there's no death, and there's no sin, and there's no brokenness. And the tree of life was a gift to creation, and it gave life. But the first couple, they took their eyes off that tree, and they placed them on another, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It promised them knowledge, maybe even decision-making, over all spiritual things. The problem is, God did not want them to know good and evil. God only wanted them to know, to experience good. God was holding back something from them because he knew it would corrupt them. Just like many of you parents, you hold back certain things from your children until they're ready for them. Like, you don't let your three-year-old cook on the stove. And if you do, come talk to me afterwards. We don't do that. We hold back certain things because we know it's not good for them. But these children of God in our biblical story, they were tempted, and so they bit from the fruit. And the Bible says their eyes were opened, and they were filled with shame, and they covered themselves, and they even hid from God. Things were not supposed to be this way. And you know what kind of fruit it was, right? It was a fig, obviously, because they used the fig leaves to cover themselves. Or some rabbis wrote, it was wheat, because the Hebrew word for wheat is similar to the word for sin. All of you gluten-free people are like, amen. Wheat, wheat's a sin. Or perhaps it was grapes, or wine made from grapes. Makes sense because the fruit of the vine is used by Jesus in the redemption story, especially at communion. Maybe the thing that got you into the trouble is the thing that God's going to use to get you out of the trouble. Our minds like to imagine what that fruit was. And finally, the rabbis wrote that maybe it was a citron or an etrog in Hebrew, a bittersweet Lemon-like fruit used during the Jewish fall festival of Sukkoth, which was a harvest celebration in which Jews make their temporary dwellings. There are a host of biblical connections we can make between many types of fruit and the redemption story of the Bible. But in the end, we're not sure. Genesis just says they bit from the fruit. In Western tradition, we associate the fruit with an apple. But this is actually a pun from the Latin Bibles that were being read at the time. By eating the malum, apple, Eve contracted malum, sin. That was the association. And the other reason that people believed it is because you often found apples in the art. But apples themselves don't come up in the Bible, and they can't even be found in the Middle East. But what the fruit is, is not nearly as important as what it represents, the metaphor it can be for our lives. See, the Bible is filled with hundreds of metaphors, specifically many, many metaphors for God. Yet Christians, we tend to limit our metaphors for God to only a few. God is a shepherd, God is a father, God is a king, and we're comfortable saying God is light. And all of these are helpful, but if they're the only ones we use, then we don't see the full picture of God. 
So the question we have to ask ourselves, whether it's in art or it's in your own imagination, how do our images of God affect the way we worship? Are there metaphors that are more helpful, like during a funeral? Or there are metaphors of God that are more helpful at a wedding? Or when you're lonely? Or when you go off to college? Maybe we need more sermons on God as a beekeeper. God as a loaf of bread. Or God as clothing. I believe the Bible used so many images of God because we can never assume that one image alone could adequately describe God. And Paul in Romans chapter 8 gives us a beautiful metaphor for God. He says this, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Creation is groaning between the trees. From the first tree, and as we wait for the last tree, creation is groaning. Our fourth child was born in our bathtub. The birth was so quick that our midwife did not make it to our house until 30 minutes after my redhead was born. And I remember my wife groaned a prayer to protect this baby. And I added, and my wife. And after catching the baby and slipping the umbilical cord from around his neck and clearing his throat to help him breathe, I have to say, that's the first pleasant cry I've ever heard. It was like praise to God. It was praise to God because our child was safe. Our child was breathing. Our child was alive. An evening of groaning had turned into new life breathing. See, the letter to the Romans describes creation groaning while giving birth to new life. Life often feels like contractions of labor. Stressful breathing, stomach pains when things aren't going right, painful groans. But they await the sweet breath of something new. The creation groans with pollution or natural disasters the animal kingdom in disarray. We groan from the three Ds of death, divorce, and disaster. The Spirit groans prayers on our behalf that we're too weak to say, and so the Spirit groans the prayers for us. You groan when no amount of words can express the emotion that you have in your gut. You groan when there's no end in sight. You groan when the complaining and blaming have given way to a true desperation. And the Bible never speaks negatively of groaning. It describes people groaning when they experience one of two things, bondage to slavery or imprisonment. And then number two, mourning the loss of a loved one. Groaning is a proper response to creation's suffering. And we know of two instances where the New Testament says Jesus groaned. Like when Mark writes in chapter 7, Jesus comes and he heals a deaf man. This man's physical suffering was only surpassed by the religious shaming 
given by others. And so Jesus prayed a groaning sigh as he healed the man's mouth and ears. His groan for this man's suffering is a prayer to God the Father. And then in John 11, Jesus is moved by the tears of his friends after the loss of his best friend, Lazarus. Even though he knows that in seconds, he will raise Lazarus back to life and he will see Lazarus breathing again, Jesus still lets out a groan of emotion over the pain that people felt that day in Bethany. Now, grumbling is not the same as groaning. Grumbling is whining for something you don't need. We complain when we compare our fortunes to other people's fortunes. Imagine the Jewish people in the desert after the Exodus. It was with gritted teeth and pointed fingers that they grumbled against Moses. They grumbled against God. Pharaoh offered a strong military to protect the land. In Egypt, they had roofs over their heads and food for their grumbling mouths. But Pharaoh also promised bondage and chains. His forced labor induced childbirth pains without any promise of new life, let alone the children that he killed. Moses offered something harder, a hard, long journey, but with a promised freedom. He offered labor in a new land where life would flourish. See, we groan when we're starving. We groan when we die. We, we groan when the chains of slavery become tighter and tighter around our necks. We groan when we have no one else to blame, no more words to pray, no future hope left in our minds. The Jewish sages identified 10 forms of prayer. One of the forms of prayer is called nakah, which is the Hebrew word for groan. Groaning is a type of prayer. And scientists believe the creation might actually groan. Since 2011, there's a low-pitched sound that many call the sound of the apocalypse, but it's usually undetectable to human hearing. In geophysics, the sound comes from the acoustic gravity waves that are formed in the upper atmosphere. A polar shift is the most common scientific explanation. Perhaps the creation really is embodying the suffering that we all experience, and it's groaning for us. The book of Romans offers a solution to our groaning, an important theological word, an important theological metaphor. And the word is adoption. Adoption is the childbirth that gives new life to someone who is already born. Adoption brings a family together, not through outward similarities, but through an inward love. Adoption is a pregnancy that is chosen. It's quite costly. It's costly both financially and emotionally. Adoption is God's way of telling us that we can be his children no matter what has happened in the past. A Jesus church should think of itself sometimes as an adoption agency. We will love the unloved. We will nurture the unwanted. We will hear the groaning soul. 
We are strong during the pains of labor because we know that the stone was rolled away and groaning gives way to sounds of new life breathing. It's why Messiah is a church where found people find people because people matter to God. In verse 23, Paul continues, we who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to God's family, the redemption of our bodies. We groan inwardly and we are adopted into God's family. Earlier in Romans chapter 8, it says that if we are adopted, then we are heirs. We are heirs of the most high king. We are heirs of royalty. Paul continues in verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. I don't know what's gone on in your life lately. I don't know what this last week has been like. But I can say that Paul is offering a promise. God is working it for your good. There's no accidents with adoption. Now, you can accidentally get pregnant. I know that full well. We have four babies, and now we're about to have another. And we don't, we don't know who's going to pop out of there. It could be Stuart, the one-eyed minion. Don't know. The ultrasound says we're having a girl. Are there any girl minions, by the way? It doesn't matter. We know more about in the, the baby in a womb than we ever have before, but yet it's always still a surprise. With all our technology, it's always still a surprise. But when you choose to adopt... You have to choose. You're choosing to adopt that kid. And there's a lot of background checks and costs and hoops to jump through, which is part of why adoption is a great metaphor for God. God is adopting us. He's choosing us as his children. It's a powerful way to talk about salvation. The next time you think about the cross, the tomb, these are the high prices and the background checks that Jesus endured to be able to adopt you. This is how God became your father. This is how Jesus became your brother and your savior. And the metaphor works well with our Lutheran doctrine. We are not choosing God. God is choosing us. And as it says here, he's doing it on purpose. And discovering your purpose becomes an important part of your faith for the rest of your life. God has you here for a reason. Again, turn to the Bible. If you take the law of Moses and the Red Sea and the birth of Christ at Christmas and the teachings of Jesus, his bitter sufferings and death on the cross, the resurrection, if you take the story of God and humanity, it all boils down to one thing. Grace. The world's being destroyed by evil. But God did not abandon the world. Instead, he gives grace. Perhaps that's why the Apostle Paul used the word 88 times in his 13 letters. I can't even name all the times that he refers to the idea as well or uses a different word like love that can also mean grace. But 88 times he uses the word because Christianity is all about grace. Take a guess how many times Jesus used the word. He never used it. It's odd that the founder of the religion of grace never uses the word directly. 
he says much about forgiveness and mercy and the love of God, which is largely the same thing. But the church has accepted the strange silence in our theology. I have another theory. Jesus taught grace with action more than word. How he treated people. What he did for people. Calling Matthew the tax collector. Loving the woman that was caught in adultery. Caring for the soul of the thief next to him on the cross. Think about the countless ways that Jesus treated people. Jesus' life taught grace. He didn't even need to use words. Earlier I said that the Bible is a book of trees. It begins with the tree in the garden when things were created good, and it ends in Revelation with the tree of life lining both sides of the river in heaven. Again, there's no more death or sin or brokenness, just like it was in Genesis. And the two trees that book in the Bible, they are connected by a third tree. Did you know that the cross is referred to as a tree as much as it is a cross? It became the New Testament writers new because Jesus' cross is a tree that brings back the tree of life. It looks like a tree of death, and it is, but it's so much more than that. It's one sacrifice for all and for all people, and it destroys the power of sin and death. This tree connects the two trees at the beginning and the end of the Bible. And everything else in between is what we know. What we experience, heartbreak and loss and brokenness and death, the stuff in between is what we experience. But historically, this thing we call life is only a blip on the screen of eternity. We live between the trees. We miss what we should have had and we yearn for what God has promised us in the end. And so we need to see the story of Scripture through the lens of creation and redemption. What started in a garden will end in a garden city. God made it good and then things went bad and God's been working ever since to make it good again and he will. And we're called to give testimony to that. That's the gospel. God made it good, things went bad and God's been working ever since to make it good again. It's that simple. That's what we believe. And Jesus is the best example of that how he treats people, how he sacrifices himself, the grace he offers, it's a foretaste of the feast to come. Now, when most people think of the end times, they have a warped view of God's judgment. They think, ever since the flood, he's been looking for something to do. Like Santa, he's got a list. He's checking it twice. I saw you at that party, dude. I know what you were doing. Don't you think you're going to get away with that? They think God is in a bad mood and he's coming after you. Ask mo what, most people what God is like. That image is there. That image is there. In Scripture, God's judgment is simply showing up. His greatness and his purity, it lets you know your place. Perfection reveals frailty. But yet most of the time when Jesus talks about end times, this is not the thing he's emphasizing. 
He's emphasizing what he's going to restore. And most of the time that Jesus talks about end times, for example, they look like large parties with adult beverages. But that's another sermon. But it is an important point about what Jesus is promising you. Look at Revelation 21. John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. The image, Christ is a groom. The church is a bride. How were you at your wedding? Were you nervous? Were you sweaty? Were you over the moon in love? Christ is too with you. With you. According to this, what is in what is the end of the end times is a giant party. And as Revelation 21 continues, with no more tears and no more pain, God has had enough. And if that is the kind of faith that you want, and if that is the kind of faith that you could come to believe in, then you're at the right church. Because when you focus on the two trees, one at the beginning and one at the end, you come to realize that God has created a masterpiece it's been stained, but he won't stop until this thing we call life is a masterpiece again. Heavenly Father.